Welcome to Disputes Digest. Today is July 2nd, 2021. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. One more thing for this week. If you haven't already, take a moment to share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to stay around after the main part of the show for a special new feature brought to you by Juice Mundi and the London VF. Now, let's get into it. We begin this week with the news, and we start with an update on a story we covered a couple of months ago. That is, the case statistics reported by the Singapore International Arbitration Center. Recall that the center saw a massive increase in cases administered by the institution. Literally an apparent jump to 1,080 cases, up from 479 that were filed in 2019. Some queried as to what could be the source of the increase, and Singapore's Ministry of Law issued a clarification regarding SEAC's record statistics. While acknowledging the growth and development of SEAC, the Ministry added its perspective by clarifying that among the total number of cases filed, that there were two datasets associated with the cases which accounted for a substantial percentage of the increase, i.e., out of the 1,080 cases filed, there were two subsets involving 261 and 145 cases respectively. Thus, if the total figure is revised to take into account for these associated cases, the total figure adjusts down to 674 cases received in 2020. Even the adjusted number is a significant increase in CX 2019 figures and is still well ahead of its two competitors, the London Court of International Arbitration, LCIA, at 444 cases and the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center, HKIAC, at 318. However, it would place SEAC just behind the ICC and perhaps provide some insight on the balance of cases increasing, but at the same time, new arbitrator appointments dropping. Two final points to this story. The Ministry of Law attributes the increase in new cases across the board for arbitral institutions by parties to the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, noting that, quote, we do not expect this trend to be permanent. Parties will learn to adapt to the new normal and exercise greater flexibility in their business dealings. COVID-19 related disputes may then tail off and SEAC will need to retain and grow its niche, play to its strengths, and to do the best that we can to stay relevant to the market and provide high quality facilities and services. And secondly, that there may be a need for greater standardization for data and performance figures from each of the institutions so that council and users alike can more accurately compare the results from various organizations around the globe. Then one more story out of Singapore, as on June 28th, the Ministry of Law extends its third-party funding framework and regime to convert domestic arbitration proceedings, certain other proceedings, in the Singapore International Commercial Court, SICC, and related mediation proceedings under new rules. Respondents to the Ministry of Law's public consultation before the rules were released supported an extension of the framework to more categories of proceedings, in particular, domestic arbitration proceedings, proceedings arising from or connected to domestic arbitration proceedings and proceedings commenced in the SICC for as long as those proceedings remain in the ICC. This also includes appeal proceedings arising from any decision made from the proceedings mentioned above and mediation proceedings relating to any of those proceedings. There were also amendments to the professional conduct rules, namely local lawyers and certain foreign lawyers involved in third-party funded proceedings may abide by the legal professional rules of 2015, which serve to prevent conflict.
conflicts of interest among practitioners and funders. Among other things, the Ministry of Law has pledged to continue to examine the SICC to provide further guidance to foreign lawyers operating in Singapore. From there, let's head to the United States for an interesting ruling where a U.S. District Court rules that an agreement purporting to require arbitration of any dispute with a corporate affiliate may be overbroad and unconscionable. In the case May v. DirecTV, the court issued an opinion against corporate interest. Here are the facts. In 2021, plaintiff Diana May, a would-be customer for DirecTV, entered into a cell phone service contract with AT&T Mobile, which included an agreement to arbitrate, quote, all disputes and claims, end quote, with AT&T's affiliates. In 2015, the parent company of AT&T Mobility acquired DirecTV. Notably, however, DirecTV does not provide cell phone services. Some years later, May sued DirecTV for making unwanted automated telemarketing. DirecTV moves to compel arbitration, asserting that the dispute was covered by the arbitration agreement governing May's cell phone plan with AT&T Mobile. A district court denied that motion, concluding that the dispute did not fall within the scope of that agreement and that any interpretation would be unconscionably overbroad. DirecTV appealed and the Fourth Circuit vacated the district court's order, finding that the dispute was within the scope of the agreement, but remanding back to the lower courts for further consideration. Then on remand, among other things, the court analyzed the scope of the arbitration agreement. The court acknowledged that the agreement was validly constructed, but that to apply the quote, any disagreement, end quote, especially those not directly related to the contract, would result in metasized arbitration clauses and infinite arbitration agreements. Applying these principles, the court found that DirecTV's reliance on the arbitration clause was both procedurally and substantively unconscionable. Procedurally, because it was a contract of adhesion where there was a large imbalance in the degree of sophistication between the parties that was non-negotiable, that was provided on a small electronic pen pad device, which was not reasonably provided for consent or consideration by a plaintiff. As a matter of substance, customers in this case, the plaintiff, would rationally expect the agreement to arbitrate would relate to issues with the contract and not with future unrelated disputes with an unknown affiliate. The court reasoned that no reasonable person would understand that they were consenting to arbitrate any claims with a future affiliate. Accordingly, the court found the arbitration agreement to be unenforceable and denied DirecTV's motion to compel arbitration. Next, staying in the United States, the Second Federal Circuit has affirmed an arbitration award while confirming continuing applicability of manifest disregard of the law. The case, Seneca Nations of Indian versus the State of New York, raises important themes in American arbitration. Let's look at the facts. On August 18, 2020, the Seneca Nation of Indians, the nation, entered into a compact with the State of New York for gambling activities in the Western District of New York. The contract was for a 14-year term with an automatic seven-year renewal period and required the nation to pay New York a percentage of revenue in exchange for its exclusive right to maintain certain gaming machines, but did not specify any state contribution during the seven-year renewal period. As the contract renewal period approached its end, neither party disagreed with the renewal agreement within itself, but the dispute arose when the nation advised the State of New York that it would not make any further contributions to the state during the next renewal period, believing that per the terms of the contract that its obligations had been so concluded. Despite negotiations, the State of New York initiated arbitration with the American Arbitration Association, AAA, before a three-person tribunal. As the arbitration developed, the State of New York withdrew an advisory letter that it had issued to the state advising the nation 
that revenue sharing was limited to 14 years in exchange for 21 years of exclusivity and operating within the state of New York. The tribunal found that the contract language, absent the advisory letter, was ambiguous and required the nation to make additional payment, pursuant to what it believed was clear from the express terms of the contract. In response, the nation filed a petition to vacate the award, arguing that the tribunal had manifestly disregarded the law. The district court rejected that argument and confirmed the award, reasoning that the tribunal was not disregarding the law, as it did consider the nation's argument and then, within its authority, rejected the argument offered by the nation. In further hearings before the court, the court rejected the arguments made by the nation while explaining that the standard for manifest disregard of the law is a valid standard, but a high burden to meet, which was not met in this case. Thus, the looming shadow of manifest disregard of the law remains, but is no more clear, which provides little comfort to arbitration practitioners. Finally, for the news this week, on June 29, 2021, the Egyptian parliament passed a couple of amendments to the power of the Supreme Constitutional Court in Egypt. In essence, these amendments empower the court to review the constitutionality of the decrees, decisions, judgments, and awards issued by foreign courts, foreign arbitral tribunals, and international tribunals that are purported to be enforced against the Egyptian state in the Egyptian territory. Furthermore, the Egyptian Prime Minister is empowered to request the court to consider such foreign and international decrees as unenforceable vis-a-vis -vis the Egyptian state. In any event, the court will have to state the constitutional provision that has been violated by such foreign international decrees of the violation itself. These unexplained amendments have raised some hotly debated issues within Egyptian jurisprudence, and in particular the international legal community. In short, there are three primary concerns. First, the potential violation of the New York Convention, two, stark violations of the provision of the Exit Convention, and three, ignoring the possibility of enforcing the Egyptian state abroad. We'll link to a closer look at these points, but there is a perception that these amendments do not service the Egypt 2030 vision, as it will put constraints on foreign direct investment in Egypt, which potentially put Egypt at a disadvantage competing with other economies in the MENA region. The impact of these amendments remains to be seen. From there, we head over to opportunities for the week. First, law firm Withers Worldwide is seeking two associates to join its legal team, one for a junior litigation position in San Francisco, and the other in New York City. Also in New York, global law firm Steptoe Johnson LLP is seeking an international arbitration associate to join its team. Then, logistics company XPO Logistics seeks a director, labor, and employment counsel to join its Charlotte, North Carolina offices. Then, law firm Fred Frank seeks a business development manager to join its litigation team based in New York. Finally, an interesting opportunity as the Project Jean Monnet Network, co-funded by the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union and the Latin American Center for European Studies, invites young Latin American researchers to submit their works to the monograph contest for young Latin American researchers, whose main objective is to foster excellence in research on the topics related to European integration in Latin America. Only unpublished monographs submitted by young researchers who are up to age 30 years old at the time of submission will be accepted. Authors must be enrolled in any higher education institution in Latin America. Submissions are due by August 1st, 2021. All right, that's the main part of the show. We're going to skip the events portion of this week and get right into our special feature. As we've been talking about for the past few weeks today, we are bringing to you part one of a new series supported by the London BF and Juice Monday. Once a month, we're going to bring to you conversations with one of the authors that has just been published on Juice Monday's blog on hot topics in international 
arbitration. This first conversation is with Sajid Suleiman, a London-based practitioner. So let's jump right into it. Hey there, and welcome back to Disputes Digest. You're in the post show, and we have you for with you today. My name is Chris Campbell still, and this special edition of Disputes Digest is done in partnership with the London V app, as well as Juice Monday. Now they have just started a blog series where they have authors that are making submissions on pieces that they have recently added or put together. And this conversation that you're getting ready to hear is a conversation with one of those authors. So the inaugural first person to speak with us in this series is none other than Sajid Suleiman. Sajid, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Very happy to be here. Now, Sajid, we have just a few minutes together. Um, but before we get into it, can you tell me a bit about yourself, uh, where you're based, where you're from, what type of work you do? Uh, yes, of course. Um, I'm a barrister in uh, London, specializing mainly in commercial litigation and international arbitration. Um, in terms of my background, I studied law in London as well. And so it was my undergraduate law degree at King's College London and then the LLM at the LSE followed by uh, being called to the bar at the Inner Temple. Okay, no, that, that's very cool. And um, I, I have fondness for all the ends of court um, in London. I did a short study myself at the Gray's Inn in London during law school, so that's great. <laughs> so uh, so that's where you studied, that's where you're based. Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the north of uh, England, up in uh, Manchester, perhaps most known for its uh, football teams. Um, so I, I spent uh, most of my time up there before moving down to London for my studies and, and then working here. Very well, very well. And uh, one more question before we get into the blog. Um, you mentioned that you do uh, international commercial arbitration work. Is there a specific field or industry that you focus on in international commercial arbitration? Uh, well, increasingly, I, I do work in energy and construction. Um, and related to that, related to uh, arbitration also domestically, within England and Wales, um, I, I have a fairly substantial amount of my practice is actually focused on aviation law, mainly acting for airlines in, in various disputes. That's often litigation in the courts rather than arbitration. Okay, very cool, very cool. Um, well, shifting focus just a bit and uh, kind of what we talked about at the outset, uh, this London VF blog, and before we talk about your piece specifically, um, I guess this is a practical matter, what interested you or caught your eye um, and, and encouraged you to submit a piece about the um, to the blog? Well, actually, um, it, it, Helis Leasing, which is uh, what my blog um, was on, is a case which essentially overlapped with two of my areas of interest, aviation and um, dispute resolution or arbitration. Um, so that was a case concerning um, an aircraft lease. So the claimant had leased an aircraft to the uh, defendant and um, the defendant hadn't paid for the lease for a set period of time. I think this was partly due to the pandemic. The, the plane was grounded and so they, they said they're not going to pay for it. And, and sure. then the dispute before the court was this, that the claimant brought a claim for damages in the high court in England and Wales for non-payment. And the defendant said, that there was an arbitration clause in the agreement which says that any dispute between the parties must go to arbitration. And so the defendant asked the High Court to stay the High Court proceedings in favor of arbitration. The, the claimant's position was this, that the within the same contract, within the same agreement, there is a, a clause, which is a, it's called the event of default clause, which states that in the event that the defendant defaults, the claimant may commence, quote unquote, court action. 
And, and the claimant said that this said uh, this would um, mean that they could commence court proceedings as opposed to arbitration in the event of uh, a default. And so the High Court was faced with uh, two seemingly contradictory provisions. It, an arbitration clause, which says that any dispute is to go to arbitration, and a default clause, which says court action may be taken. Um, and, and how the High Court resolved it is, in essence, by saying that the arbitration clause was broader in that it referred to any dispute, and a dispute over payment would be caught by that arbitration clause. And, and the, the court also then, uh, this is, I think, a slightly curious point, the court interpreted court action under the default clause to mean the London Court of International Arbitration. So one of the questions mm -hmm. I, I asked in my article is that what if the agreement didn't refer to the LCIA? What if it referred to another arbitral institution? Would the High Court's uh, interpretation have been any different? Uh, but, but I think that, in essence, in, in summary, that was the the dispute between the parties, and that's how the High Court decided the case. Um, I will back up for just a second and say, um, for those that haven't read the piece yet, the name of the piece is Courting Trouble, How to Interpret Conflicting Dispute Resolution Clauses. And that's a lot of what, uh, what Sajid was just discussing and describing there. So thank you for that background and that sort of um, discussion of the case that is, I guess, the center of your article. I guess my question would then be, what are some of the key takeaway points that you'd like the reader to sort of walk away from your piece with? I think there are at least two key takeaway points. One is the importance of drafting the dispute resolution clauses. Usually when parties are drafting contracts, disputes are not at the fore of their minds. They're not thinking about having any dispute at that point. Um, things are usually looking pretty rosy at the time of signing or, or drafting contracts. Um, but this shows how important those dispute resolution clauses are. Um, and, and related to that, um, th there was in this case, in, in Hellis Leasing, the defendant did suggest that actually the reason the word court action stayed in the draft was because they had used a template and they essentially mm -hmm. forgot to change uh, the, the term. Um, and so this, again, it shows the importance. It, it, I mean, of course, I think most people would use templates when it comes to drafting contracts, but it's very important to check every single clause and to make sure it's uh, consistent. The second, the second, I think, takeaway point from this, and, and this is a very encouraging um, indication, I think, that the High Court favoured arbitration proceedings and the High Court of England and Wales was at pains to avoid a fragmented dispute resolution process. What they didn't want was to have two proceedings, an arbitration proceedings for, for the dispute and have separate court proceedings ongoing concerning the default or perhaps even all quantum. Um, so they took a very holistic interpretation of the contract and very strongly, uh, in, in my view, favored arbitration. Sure. No, um, th th those are great two points to sort of come away with. And, um, and you know, just the sort of shocking realization that, I mean, from time to time, lawyers may well use templates. I mean, sheesh, that's just, I mean, earth shattering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, control C and control V is your friend as a, as a lawyer, isn't it? Well, well, right. And um, but I think you raised the important point of that, you know, while it's important to get guidance from templates and from other sources of inspiration, um, it's crucial, critical um, from whether you're a first year sort of trainee or associate all the way to uh, being a, a multi-decade veteran barrister or something similar um, to take good care to how you draft and what exactly is in your drafting. Exactly, exactly. And, and it can be hugely costly, a mistake of this sort. Um, just the cost of litigation alone to resolve 
the dispute over interpretation of those clauses alone can be um, very significant. Um, so it, it does, I, I think it's worth taking that time at the initial stages and drafting those contracts to avoid these costly litigations. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, any idea what you might write about next? Anything else that's on your mind that you uh, want to get out there? Uh, yes, um, th th there's one one article I recently published, actually, and I, I intend to do a follow-up on this. I published a, a, an article I co-authored with someone, Simon Camilleri from um, Queen Emanuel, um, on anti-suit injunctions. And slightly related to that, but it, it's a distinct issue, I, I do intend to write on um, the position of uh, enforcement of awards following Brexit. Uh, particularly as um, the UK is now not going to join the Lugano Convention. And there are a number of interesting points and issues that arise out of that. So that's something that um, I, I'm intending to write on. And in fact, we are also planning a, a webinar on that. Well, and just for the, the folks at home, the Lugano Convention is? Uh, it's a convention between non-EU uh, states and the EU, which essentially covers enforcement of um, arbitral awards. Sure, sure. No, well, um, that, that sounds like an interesting piece and one that's um, highly relevant given uh, the political nature of how things have shaken out, um, especially with the EU, with the UK's exit from the EU. Yes, exactly. And, and it's, it's an evolving issue. You know, uh, when we initially thought about writing on this, um, the, it looked very much like the UK was going to join the Lugano Convention. It looked almost but certain. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the past, probably, you know, it's, I think it's been about two months or so. Things have changed fairly dramatically. And now uh, that the UK is not joining the Lugano Convention, it's completely thrown open many of the issues which people thought were perhaps settled. Sure, no, I mean, and, and the UK is sort of abstention from that. Uh, we covered that, uh, or apparent, you know, contention at that point. We covered that uh, on Disputes Digest a couple of weeks ago. So um, highly relevant, highly contemporary. Um, okay, well, um, before we let you get out of here, Sajid, um, we had just a couple more questions that we're going to ask, and these are more uh, personal interest in in nature. Um, what are you reading right now, or are you watching anything interesting? Netflix or any books or anything like that? Um, well, on um, on the BBC, this is in England and Wales, um, but on the BBC there was recently a, a series called Line of Duty, hugely popular. Initially, I wasn't watching it, but it became so popular I couldn't possibly not watch it. So I binge watched pretty much the entire series. Um, and so that's been one that I, I recently watched. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I must say I'm not so big on Netflix. Um, for me, it's more the uh, English TV channels, but Gogglebox, which again will be familiar with um, some of the the, uh, the people from England and Wales. Um, Gogglebox is my way of catching up on the week's TV. You know, when you're busy with work and court and everything else, you don't always have time to sit down and, and watch. So through Gogglebox, I end up watching through the other people what they're watching. And catch up on the week's TV and news. <laughs> now that's fair enough. Um, and, and you know, you, you mentioned football briefly at the beginning, and then we're talking about things that you might watch in the UK. Um, how do you think the Euro Cup is going on now? Do you think England will go all the way? Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt about it. It's uh, Germany and England uh, tomorrow. Well, it depends when this goes out, I suppose. Um, yes, but no, definitely. I, I can see England going with the all, uh, all the way. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, look, uh, just one, well, I guess two more questions as we wrap up here. Um, what is uh, something that you're looking forward to uh, post-COVID? It has to be being able to travel. It really has to be. I, I think um, as much as we've tried to travel or gain, uh, have some sort of normality in life, um, it has been really difficult. So I think 
having a proper holiday would be nice. I, I have done a lot of staycations. I've, I've traveled around in you know, Wales, Scotland, um, as, and I think that I, I've probably run out of places to see locally. It'd be quite nice to be able to um, get on a plane out somewhere again. Sure thing. No, that that, that sounds amazing. Um, and the final question that we have for you, Sajid, is uh, any shout outs, any tips of the cap you want to give before uh, we sign off? Yes. Um, firstly, there's a, an organization that I'm involved with called um, Legal Services Are Great. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an organization that's essentially part of the UK's Ministry of Justice. Uh, but they do a number of events, uh, one coming up in just under two weeks is the UK Middle East Legal Services Week, uh, where I'll be speaking um, and there'll be a number of speakers from across the Middle East and the UK. We also had one a, a couple of months ago, which was a UK Africa Legal Services uh, Conference. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of great work being done at Legal Services are great to um, build ties between the legal professionals in the UK and abroad. Uh, the second organization I do want to give, give a shout out to, um, which is very close to my heart, um, is um, the real racial equality for arbitration lawyers, uh, an issue very close to my heart. I'm an ambassador of real and you, you might have seen and if you haven't, you should keep an eye out for the opportunities real provides for uh, law students, junior lawyers, especially um, in terms of providing scholarships and hosting events. Um, and I, I think it's a brilliant organization. No, that's fantastic. And um, uh, Real is a great friend of the show. Um, know a lot of the folks over there and have been involved with them. So a huge, I'll, I will echo your tip of the cap uh, to the good folks there. Um, so Sajid, um, unfortunately our time together has uh, has expired, but I appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us about your article. Um, any parting words? No, thank you All very right. much for having me. No, uh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to you here today. And I look forward to following the rest of your podcasts, which I've been keenly following over the past uh, few months. Well, thank you so much for that, Sajid. Well, thank you again for stopping by. Uh, for listeners, again, the name of the piece is Courting Trouble, How to Interpret Conflicting Dispute Resolution Clauses. It's on the London V app blog in partnership with Juice Monday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sajid. I know that I did, and I learned a lot from his piece. And I hope that you will join us for these special features each month. In any case, that's it for this week. Follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn and drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions or feedback, until next week, this has been Disputes Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.